what you see is the success of the Republic's economy has been that it's attracted people from Central Europe and now outside of Europe. Um, and also from Britain and the United States. You've had net immigration from Britain and from the United States over the last 20 years. Northern Ireland is different where there has been a bit more net out-migration, but it is people born in Northern Ireland who leave and don't come back. Hello and welcome to this month's Aaron's podcast. I'm Rory Montgomery. This month, we're talking about a paper entitled One Island, Two Labour Markets by John Fitzgerald, who's a professor at Trinity College Dublin and the Economic and Social Research Institute. And this was published recently in Irish Studies and International Affairs as part of the Irons Project. Um, Also very glad to have with us today um, Tom MacDonald, who's co-director of the Nevin Economic Research Institute, uh, Dublin and Belfast. Uh, And Tom has written uh, a short response uh, to John's paper, which is also uh, published in Irish Studies and International Affairs. So you're both most welcome. Um, so John, um, would you like to tell us what sort of questions were you hoping to address in this paper? Well, having spent uh, much of the last 50 years looking at the Irish labour market, um, one of the things which has been really striking is have been how closely related it is to the British labour market. And over the last few years, I've been interested in Northern Ireland. And what you find there is the Northern Ireland labour market is closely related to the British labour market. But there has been pretty well no interaction between the labour markets north and south. But because they were both so closely connected to the British labour market, they have over time rather followed each other. So you didn't see big gaps in wage rates or whatever opening up. Um, You are beginning to see some differences today because of divergent paths between Ireland and the United Kingdom and also between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. Um, But they are essentially two different labour markets on this island uh, which are connected through Britain. Tom, what were your initial reactions on on reading John's paper? Well, my initial reactions were that uh, he, he's done a he's done a wonderful pub, pub, public service here. It, it's an excellent paper, and I would certainly encourage all policymakers to read it because uh, the sheer scope of this and the, the linking of the economic theory to the empirical evidence that's there is really striking, and and how the empirical evidence fits fits with the theory so very, very well. And just from a policymaker point of view, it just shows and really highlights to me some of the policy failures over the last hundred years, the lessons that can be drawn from them. And it really shows us the direction of travel that we need to take in terms of labour market policy and broader economic policy in terms of issues such as human capital, uh, foreign direct investment, um, uh, and, and indeed fiscal and indeed fiscal policy. So I, I, I think it's it's a really important pointer, and I'd like to think that all all parties, as they approach their manifestos over the next couple of years in the Republic, but also but also in Northern Ireland, would be looking at this kind of paper to see what kind of economic policies we should be pursuing to improve standard of living for for, for people on the island going forward. Later on in the podcast, we will be looking forward uh, to policy priorities. Uh, John, maybe you might give us, though, an overview, I mean, develop a bit what you said at the beginning about the the similarities between the labour markets and the differences, and in particular, this question um, of how they are, each is refracted to the other, if you like, through the um, the British labour market. All right. Um, going back to 100 years ago, before independence, um, very few people moved from the north, what was to be Northern Ireland, to the Republic, to to work and live. And very few people moved from the Republic to Northern Ireland to live. So there were two separate labour markets that people lived and worked there or they emigrated to Britain. Um, the one exception was um, Derry, London Derry, where um, a substantial number of Derry men uh, married Donegal women. Um, so that there was some migration across the border. But what is interesting is that over the last century, it's remained the same. Very few uh, people have moved from the north to the south and very few people have moved from the south to the north uh, seeking employment, um, where huge numbers have moved from 
uh, this island to Britain. And more recently, um, more people have moved from Britain to Ireland to the Republic than from the Republic to Britain in the last 20 years. So you're seeing a reversal. But in Northern Ireland, you're not seeing that reversal. You're seeing a continual significant outflow of graduates um, uh, uh, who are born in Northern Ireland to Great Britain. Yeah, on the question of migration, I mean, I found this a particularly uh, interesting, um, an interesting sort of section of the paper. And again, maybe you could explain for us just, you know, what the research showed you about patterns over time. I mean, there have been ebbs and flows um, in both jurisdictions over the over the years, uh, but at times quite different from each other. All right. Well, uh, what economic theory and empirical work shows is people move to where they can have a better life. And for 200 years, people from this island were moving elsewhere to the United States, Canada, Australia, Britain to have a better life. And that that's what drives migration. Mm. Um, So uh, the migration to Britain were people who they could earn substantially more in Britain, have a better lifestyle than they could on this island. And Ireland is not unique in this. Like there's research which uh, done by Kevin O'Rourke, which shows that movement from Europe to the United States raised wage rates in Europe, uh, which had more labor than it really needed and reduced wage rates in, 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 in the United States. But the people who moved from Europe to the United States, on average, had a better standard of living as a result of moving. So this, is, this has been a pattern through time and remains a pattern today. Um, but the migration, um, what you see is the success of the Republic's economy has been that it's attracted people from Central Europe and now outside of Europe mm-hmm. um, and also from Britain and the United States. You've had net immigration from Britain and from the United States over the last 20 years. Northern Ireland is different where there has been a bit more net out, out migration, but it is people born in Northern Ireland who leave and don't come back. And one of the success stories of the Republic, and I think an under-researched area on what's changed Irish society, has been the returning emigrants. They turned out to be homing pigeons. They went and they came back. And it changed our culture to a more coffee shop culture Mm. than uh, a pub culture, which you may or may not like. um, But it is returning emigrants where you don't have the returning emigrants to the same extent in Northern Ireland. And it would be another area of which I think it would be interesting interesting to research um, is the effect on business of uh, managers who've experienced abroad. My perception is that uh, that has had a big impact. In Northern Ireland, the fact that people don't come back is a loss. And the SRI, Alan Barish and others, has done research which shows people who emigrate and come back earn 10% more over their lifetime because they learned a foreign language or learned how to things do things different. So that's a channel which has been really important. And I say this conscious of the fact that I have my three daughters are living abroad. So I, I, I welcome the idea of pigeons. Well, as I think I was saying to you before we talked, I mean, both my parents um, were among the very small number of people in Ireland in the 50s and 60s born in the in the north. Um, but there are different patterns of migration, though, in different decades. I mean, I think my sense was that there much more volatility in, in, in the sort of migration levels into and out of the, the south, I mean, higher peaks and higher and lower lows um, in the 50s and the 80s, for example. Uh, and then, but over the last twenty years, what would you say the story has been? Well, in the in the from about nineteen forty through to close to nineteen seventy, well, certainly nineteen sixty, Northern Ireland had a much better performance. It had a good Second World War, um, which stopped or dramatically reduced emigration. Where we had a miserable period, where we made a lot of mistakes after the Second World War, and you see huge out migration. What you've seen, um, the Immigrants traditionally from Ireland were unskilled, um, although a lot of graduates went in the 50s um, um, and 60s. But in the 80s, things changed that if you didn't have skills, if you've been unemployed in Ireland, you are worse off moving to Britain. The welfare system improved here so that the out-migration in the late 80s and from then on has been predominantly of graduates. So they go and 
I remember uh, real concerns in the IDA and elsewhere in the late 80s about the best and the brightest were going. Well, they were homing pigeons. They came back in the 90s. So you've seen, and even today, maybe 20% of each age group emigrates, um, but they come back. So emigration hasn't stopped, um, um, but they are predominantly highly qualified. But the immigration into Ireland in the last 20, 30 years has been predominantly of skilled people, like people you tend to think of people who may come and take more less skilled jobs. But actually, the immigration has strengthened the skill base of this economy. And when you think of Google and Facebook and these companies, which may be going through Twitter through difficult times at the moment, um, that... There's been huge immigration to work in these companies, but the people working there are earning very high salaries because they are highly skilled. So the economy has been strengthened by immigration, not just returning emigrants, but by foreigners coming to work here. And the research shows that it's actually helped the economy grow and has been good for less skilled Irish people because it's expanded the economy. So we now have a low a level of unemployment. And in the northern um, labour market, again, there's been a, a certain inflow of people from, from outside these islands yeah. and from outside Europe, indeed. But is the mix roughly the same, as far as we can tell? Um, they tend to be, be more, more better educated than your average person in Northern Ireland. So it has, to some extent, but the gap is between the immigrants and the, the uh, uh, residents um, is smaller in the case of Northern Ireland. Um, what seems to be the case is that um, there's disproportionately the emigration is it's kids uh, finish uh, high school, they do their A-levels or whatever, they go on to university and between a third and 40% go to Britain to university and never come back. Mm. Or two-thirds of them never come back. Now, predominantly, they appear to be uh, from a unionist or Protestant background. And there's an stu interesting study done by Pivotal um, a year ago asking people why they went and why they didn't come back. And they did not like a society of identity politics. They did not want to be identified as Catholic or Protestant. And it's interesting in the answer to the religion question in the in 2011 Scottish census, I, I, I don't have data for, for England and Wales, People from the Republic who had emigrated to Scotland gave predominantly the same answer as they gave in the Irish census, 50, 70 percent Catholic. But uh, uh, people from a, a, a unionist Protestant background either didn't answer the question or said nothing or like th that they had gone to Scotland to get away from having to answer the religion question. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is... And certainly the pivotal study suggests that it, this huge loss of human capital to Northern Ireland mm. um, um, is because it is perceived by their children to be an unattractive place to live. And it is if you could change that, you could make a really big difference to Northern Ireland. Going to come on to education in a, in a, in a, in a second, but one other aspect of your treatment of migration which interested me was that the the levels of movement across the border um, in either direction have remained very low and even indeed lower than one might expect um, from a sort of general sort of regional economic point of view. Yeah, there's a recent study which I did with Sean Lyons, actually he was the, uh, had the idea um, and another colleague from the SRI where he looked at commuting across the border because you're it, like wage rates now are higher in the Republic than they are in Northern Ireland. The cost of accommodation is higher. So uh, why not commute? And what you found was that there is a border, that people from the Republic don't commute as much mm. as you would expect across the border to nor work in Northern Ireland. And people from Northern Ireland don't commute as much across the border as you would expect, given they could earn more in the Republic. Mm. Um, but the, what the study showed was the exception, of course, is Derry, London Derry, mm. where there is very significant commuting from Donegal into Derry. That it, it is, it's the fourth city on this island um, and should be a major pole for growth, but for various reasons for another day and um, it, it, it's had problems. But the commuting from um, Catholic regions in the north 
uh, predominantly Catholic, is higher, significantly higher than from regions where the population is predominantly from a Protestant unionist background. So there is a resistance to commuting, but it's a resistance which is shared to some extent by people from a Republican Catholic background background as well. So there is much less, the the border was there in 1922 in terms of commuting, in terms of migration, and it is there today, Um, despite the fact that there's been a century of freedom of movement and uh, certainly 50 years in which anybody could move in either direction under the EU. Interestingly, um, Northern Ireland had restrictions on anybody moving from for the Republic, are from England to work in Northern Ireland. They restricted the inflow, but obviously very few people won't make that move in the 30s or 40s. Tom, John has already sort of talked about um, the role of education mm. um, in both in, in, in labour markets, we know, but also its impacts on patterns of migration as as well. And, you know, from, from a sort of Northern Ireland perspective, I mean, I think, you know, there's it's, it's widely held. I think almost everybody agrees that there are obvious reforms which could be undertaken, which, but which haven't been. But have you seen any sign um, that uh, of possible changes in, in approaches to educational policy which might improve labour market outcomes in Northern Ireland? Not especially, unfortunately. Uh, Northern Ireland, unlike the Republic, has caught itself in a what we call a bad equilibrium. Uh, so it's got a, a low skills problem now. So it, there's a lack of demand for high skills and there's a lack of supply of high skills. So it's caught in a low productivity, low value added equilibrium, which leads to uh, a lower standard of living. And um, as John has, has pointed out, uh, a good uh, chunk of graduates um, are leaving for England and Wales never to return. So, um, I mean, John points out in his paper what many of those reforms could be. Obviously, the issue with early streaming um, has been an ongoing, had been an ongoing problem for Northern Ireland. Uh, it, it tends to create a, a bifurcated dynamic where there is a, a large group of left behind who, who never really catch up. Uh, often people develop academically, intellectually later, later than the age of 11 or 12. So that was a, an ongoing policy failure. In Northern Ireland, uh, and then again, there's that lack of fiscal funding for third-level education. There's a lack of supply of third-level places in Northern Ireland, and um, look, there's a lot of things that could be that, that could be done, both, both north and south, in terms of um, providing subsidies for students to take up uh, STEM careers, uh, to try and embed those type of workers in Northern Ireland and indeed in the Republic of Ireland. The Republic of Ireland is, of course, in a different position. It's established a positive equilibrium of high levels of human capital, which is then an attractor to other people. Those jobs are there now in in Dublin, in particular the Greater Dublin area. And um, unfortunately, the solution for Northern Ireland is is long-term in nature. It's going to require root and branch reform and increased funding for education, and the fruits of that may not manifest uh, for a generation, with the exception of potentially higher funding for, uh, for for third level, which could be used as a way to to stop people from going to England and Wales in the first place, make it attractive to stay here, so that they never earn those those higher salaries in in London and, and they don't build up those friendship bases, those, those friend bases there, which which then act as a kind of a, a glue that binds that binds them to England so that they never return. In terms of the socio-cultural factors that John has pointed out, obviously, again, that's a lot, that's going to be a long-term process um, for which economists don't particularly have any easy answers, obviously. But I suppose it, it can be Easy to be complacent about the Republic of Ireland too. Um, uh, we do have a lot of a lot of weaknesses. So, just to point to a few, obviously there is a lack of housing supply in the Republic of Ireland. That will make it increasingly difficult to attract workers, um, high human capital workers, into Ireland. That's already a problem that the French Embassy have al- have already highlighted. Other places have have too. Uh, but but also education spending itself. Actually, uh, annual spending on education per pupil. Uh, based on full-time equivalent in the Republic of Ireland is significantly below that of other high-income Western European countries, um, with perhaps the exception of the United Kingdom. 
and, and the Republic has a particular deficit deficit at, at third level. So we do have we do have a funding crisis at third level, and that is going to manifest in terms of lower productivity over the next ten or twenty years. Uh, for the United Kingdom, uh, the issues are more at, at second level, as it happens in terms of underfunding. And Ireland and the UK, and of course this affects Northern Ireland too, those two countries have the lowest research and development spending uh, per person in Western Europe as well. Um, and that is a, that, that's going to affect their innovative capacity and productive capacity over the next generation and that's going to lead to lower growth, it's going to make Ireland less attractive north and south uh, and that's going to cost us in the long run. So, so those are obvious policy wins. They're expensive to fix. The gap in the UK is about 17 billion to, 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 the, to the high income Western European average. It's about 1.1 billion in the South. Significant sums, but they don't, they don't enter the zeitgeist because they're not here and now salient problems such as health and, and housing. So a, a caution about the future. If uh, we made good policy decisions in the past, we risk embedding policy Mistakes we arguably made in, in the po- during the austerity period by, by cutting education as opposed to perhaps making other choices. Um, and that may come back to bite us over, over the next 10 or 20 years. Yeah. On, on education, I mean, John, one of the interesting things, I, 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 one of the many interesting things in your paper, I think, was the, was the demonstration that, in fact, um, the people with high levels of education are, are more likely um, to emigrate um, from either Northern Ireland or the Republic um, than people with lower levels of education. But this is a phenomenon which has gone back a long time. I mean, I suppose the fact that there were so few graduates relatively in the 50s and 60s meant that maybe this wasn't very visible, but it's, it's quite striking. Um, a very high proportion of people in their 80s who are graduates born in the Republic are still living in the United Kingdom. Mm. That, that while the bulk of the emigrants were navvies who went to work in the building industry, actually an awful lot of Irish graduates went. And that was a major cost, a loss mm. to the economy. It's one of the reasons for the underperformance mm. in the 60s and 70s. Um, today, the advantage is they go and the bulk of them come back. Um, so it is, and the housing issue, which Tom, uh, you uh, uh, addressed, um, that is a real issue in terms of uh, them coming back. We need them to come back and bring what they're learning from abroad. So the constraints on this economy um, um, are significant. And the, uh, another thing which you identified in terms of third level, Northern Ireland, they fix the amount per student. Um, and as a result, they have restricted number of places in Northern Ireland, which forces a lot of people who might otherwise have studied in Northern Ireland to go and then they make their friends, they meet people in Britain and they never come back. Here, um, there's a fixed amount of money and it go- follows the student. So actually, the amount per student going to I- I- in universities has fallen over time. So there are issues of quality. But one of the it, there's been a lot of work done by the ESRI in the South looking at quality and education. Um, and what and what matters, uh, and which shows that investment I- I- is important. But the third level sector, which does the research, has not researched itself. Does it matter that uh, uh, universities get much less per student to the Republic than in Northern Ireland? As somebody located in Trinity, I think it does. But I think the third level sector needs to show what would make a difference. Now, the area which you identified in terms of research, I think, for the future, um, that is a really important issue. Um, And the nature of that research um, for the future of of our economy and our society is going to be really essential. Maybe you can say something about wages um, and how they've evolved both north and south and vis-a-vis Great Britain. Over, over the years. And again, I, I have a sense that there's been a bit of a change um, in the pattern since about 2000 or so. Um, the, before independence, um, for a range of skilled areas in, in North and South, wage rates were actually very similar to wage rates in Britain. So that when you look at the 1911-1921 census, there are pretty well no carpenters or plumbers born on this island working in Britain. But there are a huge number of people uh, uh, working because they were paid the going rate. So the trade union movement uh, meant that Mm. it was a United Kingdom trade union movement and 
pay rates were the same, um, which may have restricted the employment opportunities because productivity was much lower on this island in 1910. What you see is a different trajectory over the subsequent century. Um, um, there was a substantial, under protection, there was a very big increase in number of jobs in manufacturing in Ireland in the late 20s and in the 30s. They tended to be low paid jobs. So what you see is that average earnings in manufacturing, having been the Guinnesses good employers paying high salaries in 1920. Um, by the late 1930s, wage rates here were substantially lower than in Britain, and especially in the 50s, which meant um, why remain in Ireland when you could earn an awful lot more in Britain? What you see in the 60s is, late 60s, is a very rapid convergence where Irish wage, wage rates reach UK wage rates. And over the period until certainly about a decade ago, wage rates in Ireland have just tracked what's in Britain because if you don't pay what people can get in London, they'll go to London. Mm. Um, they'd work in Ireland for about 10% less than they would in Britain. But if you're paying them 15% less, they're gone. Um, in the more recent period, you've seen wage rates in Ireland have risen above the equivalent in Britain, in particular in terms of third level. It's the companies, a lot of the foreign direct investment companies pay very high salaries. You're looking 70, 100, 100 grand. Um, and that has, the, the gap has opened up. Northern Ireland has been different. Northern Ireland has tracked more closely what's happening in Britain. Um, salaries are lower in Northern Ireland. Um, you're looking at 80% of, of the equivalent of Britain. Now, you've got to look at cost of living. If you're comparing a job in London and a job in Belfast, living in Belfast is much cheaper than in London. So in terms of standard of living, the gap, there's this big gap in wage rates between Britain and Northern Ireland. But the true standard of living means that the outflow is less than you would expect because actually you can live better in Belfast on a given salary than you can in London. But the wage rates, to sum up, wage rates in Northern Ireland have tracked um, a, 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 a somewhat below mm. those in Britain um, and has been much more stable. In the Republic, um, there's been this big difference in the in the 30s up to the early 60s um, where they're much lower and then convergence. But I think, uh, I mean, it's fair to say that the public sector pay uh, and indeed pay in, in some of the professions, you know, accountancy and law and so on, uh, are now you know, markedly lower uh, in the north than in the, the south. Now, of course, there are the housing pressures that you mentioned, other cost of living issues. Um, but there still does, would appear, at least anecdotally, because we're talking to people I know in the North, to be a sort of a a certain attractiveness now about the about Dublin, which wasn't there before. And I suppose one other point to make is that there was a period where there was a very wide divergence in tax rates between um, North and South and Britain. I mean, when I joined the Department of Foreign Affairs in 1983 as a third secretary on £7,000 a year, I was immediately in the top tax bracket paying a marginal rate of over 70%. Mm. Um, but that has changed, thank goodness. Yeah, uh, tax rates are probably slightly, uh, well, it depends on where you are in the income yeah. distribution. At the bottom, they're lower here. The standard of living, um, just looking at what you talked about, the public sector, it is interesting that the education sector um, is paid much more highly in the Republic than in Northern Ireland, than in Britain, or than in much of the rest of Europe. And actually, in terms of we spend less per head on pupil, but we spend more per teacher. Um, and it's probably, we've probably got better value out of it. If you pay teachers well, you get good teachers and they can teach more pupils. So uh, concentrating the pupil-teacher ratio um, is probably not the idea. But I just pick on that, You're t the Gardaí, um, there's a range of public sector areas uh, they're much higher paid in Ireland than in Northern Ireland or Britain. However, uh, like there are major cuts during the crisis, as you uh, you and I know, Rory, um, <laughs> our salaries were, were dramatically reduced, which was appropriate for those of us who are on hire because the, we were paid much more than the equivalent of the private sector. 
Today, the gap is much narrower um, and it's much more complex that there are people who um, may be senior civil servants who could earn a lot more doing something less skilled, possibly in Google, than they can in the civil service. So it's a more complex world. Um, but the public sector generally is significantly more highly paid here. But as Tom identified, the cost, if you have a house and you're towards the end of your career, like you and I, Rory, and we, uh, no mortgages. Yes, you're fine in Dublin, <laughs> but if you have to rent or you're trying to buy, um, even on your higher salary, things aren't comfortable. Uh, so, um, uh, it, so, which means the standards of living are comparisons are very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Coming now to the, the present, um, has Brexit had an impact um, on the labour market? I mean, obviously, leaving aside the wider economic um, picture, although, of course, the two are very closely linked. Has Brexit had a, an impact um, in Britain, um, Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland vis-a-vis -vis the Republic? Um, Tom, do you think? Yes, uh, and will continue to do so. Uh, some of that impact has been um, masked a little bit because of the COVID crisis. Mm -hmm. um, so obviously that's distorted all of the figures for for 2020 and 2021. They're, they're going to be problematic mm -hmm. when we do analysis going, going forward. But um, Brexit certainly creates opportunities for Northern Ireland. Um, uh, so you could see... You could see um, opportunities for the Northern Ireland economy there uh, benefiting at mm. Great Britain's expense, potentially, um, which which is a, a, a once in a generation opportunity, perhaps that should not be lost. But but yeah, so yeah, I think we will see a mild diversion of third country migration, which might have gone to Great Britain, going going to the Republic of Ireland instead, or at least we would if we had a, a, a functioning housing market. So, so, so the housing market issues in the Republic may mitigate some of the potential benefits in terms of inward migration of human capital that, that otherwise would have happened. But, but look, I, I would anticipate that Brexit will lead to lower level of productivity and lower level of competition in the UK economy over time, at least certainly for Great Britain. Again, Northern Ireland has, has other options here. Um, and, and that would make it less attractive uh, to go to Great Britain vis-a-vis uh, -vis other European countries if you're coming from Eastern Europe or you're coming from beyond Europe. And certainly it would make it less attractive, I would have thought, if you're coming from the Republic of Ireland. Now, obviously, there'll be sectoral differences um, and there'll still be opportunities for higher paid workers or high educated workers, but, but very much not the case for lower skilled workers. Uh, so I, I would imagine that the, the reversal of migration that we started to see over the last 30 years will continue in the Republic's favour vis-a-vis uh, vis -vis Great Britain. Northern Ireland itself has an opportunity here to potentially start to reverse some of its historical and continuous losses to Great Britain as well. Uh, and of course, for going to those soci socio-cultural points that John has brought up, just the notion of Brexit itself and this talk of migrants as being invaders is not exactly conducive to attracting people into the UK. Uh, and again, that is something that the Republic of Ireland as an English language country could, could also benefit from as well. So I do think that we will see the impact on migration and ultimately wages and human capital over manifest quite markedly over the next 10 to 15 years. Anything to add to that, John? No, I, I think the issue about productivity in Britain, it's something which economists in Britain are really concerned about. Politicians in the current, well, in the last three administrations in Britain have not understood, like the Liz Truss re regime, completely mad um, in terms of addressing. And so productivity, uh, the Treasury said that that would be the effect of Brexit. Uh, National Institute for Economic and Social Research in London, a whole, a whole range of people said this is Brexit is bad for productivity. And the government haven't found a way of dealing with this issue. And what economic theory suggests is that when productivity rises, that the benefits accrue both to the owners of companies and the employees. So if productivity is much worse in Britain, employees are going to be much worse off as a result of Brexit. And that's a permanent loss, which um, would be difficult to address. But at least they should start addressing it. So I think that the gap which are beginning to see open up between the Republic and, Northern, and the United Kingdom uh, in terms of wage rates could well Increase. expand so that the net immigration from Britain into Ireland 
give or take the housing market, could well be bigger in the future. Um, many years ago, I wanted to do a cartoon for an ESRI publication of um, uh, one of the factors affecting the growth of the economy and that um, I wanted a cartoon of uh, Irish women bringing horned Vikings back as captures to Ireland <laughs> because uh, 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 people people go, they meet, meet people born abroad and they kidnap some of them and bring them back to us. That has been one of the benefits. But it hasn't been just been women, but uh, men as well have kidnapped their spouses and brought them to Ireland. Uh, does the ESRI publish many cartoons? Um, we there, there was one report which I did uh, publish uh, where I got permission to actually commission cartoons for. Uh, oh, very I, I suppose one other one other. I mean, it's not maybe directly Brexit related, but it's more, but it's not fully Brexit related, though partly Brexit related. Over the next couple of years, will be the the overall sort of fiscal position of the two uh, jurisdictions. Mm. I mean, we are recording this about a week before Jeremy Hunt makes his fiscal statement. Clearly, the the, the current turbulence in the multinational sector, uh, tech sector, you know, may raise certain issues about the sustainability of mm. our own public finances. But for now, at least, as we speak in the middle of in early November, twenty twenty two, it looks as if a new wave of austerity will be much more severe in Britain um, than anything we'll see here. At least, not that we can know for certain, but. That's, I suppose, another um, factor which will impact on labour markets and, and unemployment rates indeed over the period ahead. Yeah, no, no, the United Kingdom is facing into an extremely difficult two years, probably. Uh, the um, the Bank of England has talked about potentially eight consecutive quarters of, of recession, which is which would be incredible if, if that was to play out. Obviously, that would have an impact on the UK. I, as an attractor for for migration, it's much more difficult to call it for the Republic of Ireland economy. Uh, we're so globalised, so much of our GDP depends on, on such a small number of firms that it, it's much harder to project uh, or, or forecast for the Republic of Ireland economy. In terms of those corporation tax receipts, it's true that the tech companies are doing much worse in 2022 than they did in 2021. That's bound to have a downward impact on, on corporation tax receipts in 2023. And obviously, the Department of Finance hedged against that a little bit to what they're they're now calling a reserve fund. It used to be called a rainy day fund um, uh, in, in anticipation that, that, that the fiscal p- picture in 2023 and 2024 may be significantly worse. Against that, uh, the, the, the increase in the corporation tax rate to 15% if that ever happens and also potentially the unwinding of capital allowances by some of these firms could actually mm. lead to higher corporation tax receipts in 2023. But I don't know the answer to that. Uh, we haven't actually, one thing we haven't talked about uh, is unemployment, of course, and looking at your at your paper, I mean, unemployment is now, or has been over the last number of years, at re- incredibly low historic rates, north, south, and in, in Great Britain, though some of this in Britain, people say, is, is masked by the very large number of people in sort of sickness and yeah. disability payments, it's the same in the north. Less of an issue in the south, I think? Yeah, well, I think, Rory, you're showing to some extent your age, uh, uh, you're younger <laughs> than I am, uh, uh, but still, you remember the 1980s. The, and the 90s. Yeah, with the 70-day 80s and early 90s, with very high unemployment mm. and the feeling that, that we could never, that this was, we were fated to high, have high unemployment. We have now become used to the fact that unemployment should be low, and it remains low, and it is the, the success of this economy. It is also low in Britain. Um, uh, so and in Northern Ireland, and right. in Northern yeah. Ireland, so that issue has, to a significant extent, been addressed. But on the public finance issue, we in the the Republic, um, we are face a need to tackle climate change, to tackle ageing, housing. Actually, the tax rates which we pay will have to rise. And it's a question how you do that most effectively. And there's a very the Commission on Taxation, uh, which published their report in, I think, August, um, um, have very important suggestions on how we do that, having minimal impact, like yeah. higher property taxes, um, a range of different things. The United Kingdom has, a, 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 we're at the low end in Europe, um, but we're within, we're European in our ta- is like France or Germany, we're lower, but we're within the range. The United Kingdom has much lower tax burden. It's halfway between Europe and the United States. Mm. If the United Kingdom wants to have decent public services, if they want to be European in their public services, they're going to have to pay higher taxes, which is anathema to the current 
uh, which the last three UK <laughs> Tory regimes are, is it five? Four. I can't remember how many <laughs> prime ministers they've gone through. Um, They're on their fifth. <laughs> fifth all right. Uh, uh, the last five UK administrations. At, at the time of recording. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but the, the, and the budget is going to reflect this. They're going to have to pay if they want the NHS to survive. Yeah. Um, they're going to have to pay if they want to improve their educational system. They're going to have to pay for defence, a range of things. So, and we all face the problem of aging, um, um, uh, some of us more than others, uh, at a personal level. But uh, 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 so, so I think that the next decade in terms of public finances is not going to be about tax cuts. It's going to be about how we pay a, a bit more for the things that we need. Looking to the future then, I mean, we, we spoke a bit earlier about the, the huge importance um, for the future of Northern Ireland and the Northern Ireland's Economy Society of education reform. Mm. And you very much emphasised or highlighted the the importance of trying to find a way to attract more graduates mm. to come to come back. And, and you indeed, Tom, uh, talked about trying to encourage students to, to stay in, in Northern Ireland for their education. Uh, education apart, I mean, do you think there are other policy priorities um, in, in terms of labour markets, which would be relevant to either or to both um, economies. And then a related question, I mean, is there anything at all to be done on a sort of all-island or, or north-south basis which could assist in, in any of these objectives? Well, on, on the first question, I would point to childcare costs and, and costs of caring generally as being an issue for Republic and for for Northern Ireland, we 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 have some of the highest costs in the in the world, or at least within the OECD, as a percentage of disposable income. So that's a barrier to second earners and lone parents entering the labour market. So that reduces labour force participation, reduces labour supply. Um, so that's a loss to society as a whole. I would regard the non-tackling of that issue uh, as it's been for for many decades now as being a significant and ongoing false economy and policy failure uh, in Northern Ireland and in Republic of Ireland and in the Republic of Ireland. And, and look, John has pointed to the fact that taxes are going to have to go up just to deal with the cost of aging, to, to deal with the cost of. Uh, net zero uh, and and for very many other reasons to, to pay for the welfare state. Um, on a north-south basis, there are certainly economic opportunities that could be looked at, not necessarily high high employment, but for example, Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland both have a comparative advantage in wind, wind energy, for example. There might be advantages in terms of scale and scope uh, in um, combining our resources to deal with that issue. Um, uh, there are other areas as well uh, in terms of the education and third level sector um, uh, maybe it would be it would be more beneficial to look at it on an all-Ireland basis in terms of resources and in terms of um, attracting graduates south perhaps in ter- instead of to England and Wales they may be more inclined to go back down as well uh, um, so there are certainly opportunities there um, it, I, I would be keen for for Northern Ireland to uh, not miss the opportunity presented by their different status uh, post-Brexit. Post, post there are opportunities there and there are certainly opportunities for Irish business as well, to, to, to Republic of Ireland business to, to, to benefit there, there too. And look, there, there are, are other reforms. We, we've seen from COVID that we don't need to be as high bound to the office. Uh, and there are issues in Republic and Northern Ireland in terms of people with disabilities, people with caring responsibilities, as I pointed out, older people in, in their 60s and 70s who may wish to work three hours, three days a week, work from home, whatever it might be. So I think flexible hours, flexible working arrangements, location, d- these are policy reforms, north and south, that could benefit the labour market and benefit the economy in the long run. Well, so before I come to you, John, um, of course, one thing we didn't mention or haven't mentioned so far is the relative performance or... I dare say underperformance of both jurisdictions when it comes to vocational training, oh, apprenticeships, yeah. and and all of that. I mean, and, that, and that's I think seen, and of course that's related to the debate, in fact, of whether we've gone as far as we should in terms of third level mm-hmm. um, participation. I mean, John, first, yeah. Um, I, I, we've talked a lot about graduates and third level. Actually, 
the success of the Republic in dealing with the early school leaver problem in the last 15, 20 years, where we have dramatically reduced and particularly was a huge problem with boys leaving. 20% of boys 20 years ago Mm. left school early. Um, We've dramatically reduced that. And that, in terms of society, um, and future participation, um, that's a huge gain. Yeah. Northern Ireland has the worst problem of any British region, and which are in turn worse than the Republic in terms of early school leavers. And it's particularly affecting kids from a Protestant background. And it goes back to the streaming in Northern Ireland education. Yeah. The failure to deal with this um, condemns Northern Ireland um, uh, to major social, economic problems and political problems in that who are the militants or whatever, they tend to be the kids who have been excluded from society because they've left school early. So for Northern Ireland, an even bigger priority is dealing with the early school leaver problem. Going back to your question, Rory, in terms of education, I think um, it is surprising that we've in the, the Institute of Technology sector, they're now rebranding as universities, has been really important to the Republic. Northern Ireland underprovided. And you would expect to see more kids from Northern Ireland going to Dundalk IT, Letterkenny IT, Sligo. So more swearing and sharing of the educational resources at third level on the island. Rory, you mentioned to me before we began that your parents came north to Trinity. South. They came south to Trinity from Belfast. Um, More of that. Now, the problem from the Northern Ireland point of view is that your parents remained. um, And if they come to the Republic, (laughs) rather than going to Britain, it may be our gain and their loss. Mm. But uh, uh, if it is, so students making good use of the education resources at third level on the island. Another area is the health service. Um, The NHS in Britain works well and it's broken up into regions with populations of about five or seven million and you need that scale to provide the relevant services. On this island, um, uh, the NHS in the north is underperforming. Um, actually having an integrated training of doctors and so on. So you do time in Dublin, do time in Belfast, that actually uh, in terms of developing the medical resources on an island-wide basis, and for certain things, Britain is the go-to place for kids with certain diseases or certain problems. We're too small to provide. So I think that that's another area. The third one, which you've repeatedly talked about, um, you didn't mention the word protocol, but it is the opportunities for Northern <laughs> Ireland which you've continually talked about. And you are right that that is a big opportunity um, to be both in the British market and in the single market. The problem is until the protocol is settled for good yeah. um, nobody's going to invest in Northern Ireland and they've lost a lot. That there are, uh, British SMEs have a huge problem exporting to the EU after Brexit. So what some of the more successful have done is they've opened branches in Germany or in Belgium to supply Europe. But actually, um, they have to open a separate company. If they had just opened a, a shop or office in Belfast, mm. they could do it so much m- more easily. Yeah. Um, uh, but why invest in opening a shop in Belfast if you don't know whether... Yeah. That, so I think that you've continually emphasize that opportunity and it is capitalizing on that opportunity which requires a deal on the protocol. Yeah, yeah and it would be a historical mistake not to capitalize on yes. it because it is a real unique opportunity for the Northern Ireland economy yeah. uh, which both from the blue 10 to 10 years ago but it is there now mm. and they should really be exploiting yeah. it on all sides. So just just before we come to a, an end though I, so I'll just say in parenthesis that um, the next generation bucked the trend of my parents in that my uh, my, my daughter-in-law came um, to Dublin for 10 years as a medical student and junior doctor, and she's now back in Belfast, having brought my southern educated son with her. So at least the part of the historic balance is being is being righted. Um, but before we finish, um, any any last words from you, Tom, and, and, and then John? Yeah, I, I, I suppose the thing I'd say is the Northern Ireland economy has continuously underperformed, but it doesn't have to be that way. There doesn't have to be 
it doesn't have to be a, a depressing future. We know what the what the policy reforms that are required are. They will take a long time to manifest in terms of higher higher standards of living in many respects, but it's important not to lose those opportunities that are there. Obviously, around Northern Ireland's unique status post-Brexit is one, but dealing, dealing with education reforms, starting at early years, dealing with child poverty, where you get the greatest returns in terms of educational outcomes, um, but also, as John has pointed out in his paper, immediately addressing the issue uh, at third level and, and third level funding as, as perhaps being a, a relatively easy short to medium term win. It's very, it's very, very possible. For the Republic of Ireland, important not to think that we're doing better than we really are. We're extremely dependent upon foreign direct investment. It's been enormously successful, but indigenous the, the indigenous economy is still underperforming. We do have issues in terms of innovative capacity and productive capacity outside the foreign direct investment sector. So, so we need to re- redouble our focus on that and continue our, our successful policies in education and double down on them by bringing funding up to Western European levels and focusing on research and development and a, t- a strong 21st century economy. John? Um, in Northern Ireland, here we are, three people from the Republic talking about their problems. They need to talk about their own problems and solve their own problems rather than getting caught up with constitutional issues. Like, um, all this discussion on the protocol has distracted from the real issues that they need to address. Similarly, talking about a united Ireland, get on and make Northern Ireland work first and then uh, you have the luxury of constitutional discussions. Um, In terms of the Republic, um, I think that the really big challenge is climate change because it is something where we have to spend money and take uh, you, you spend less have consume less um because we've got to pay more in taxes to do the job over the coming decade and the problem is that normally when politicians go out and knock on the door and say vote for me i'll do this and it'll be good for you the politicians have got to go out and say, I'm going to do this and it's going to be bad for you. You're going to be worse off for this decade because your grandchildren and great-grandchildren need you to do this. It's a difficult sell for the political system. Yeah, we need to change the language It's as something like the great investment or something like that yeah. in our future and make and make it a positive yeah. story rather than a negative one. Well, that's a, both a, a challenging but a, an upbeat note on which to end. So, John Fitzgerald and Tom McDonald, thank you both uh, so much for coming in to talk to me today. Thank you. Aaron's it's a joint project of the Royal Irish Academy, the premier All-Ireland Scholarly Institution, and the Keogh Norton Institute for Irish Studies at the University of Notre Dame's Keogh School of Global Affairs. Its mission is to publish authoritative, independent and non-partisan analysis and research on constitutional, institutional and policy options for Ireland, North and South in a post-Brexit context. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more and read the research in full on this and on all the other articles at aronsproject.com. And my thanks to everybody for listening to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you.